Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. Happy, happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm fired the bleep up right now to be with you here today hope you are having a great day we will get to some uh chicago white Sox talk in major league baseball as a uh, trade deadline fast approaches and nfl training camps kick off today fun fact the steelers and the cowboys kick off training camp today and uh, also the steelers signed melvin ingram yesterday cool so as football fast approaches, and you know football season is always the biggest and baddest here on the Take It Easy podcast. And as the NBA Finals comes to a screeching halt, we got to get some baseball in here. So we will talk about that coming up later in the show. But first, I want to get right to our bit because one of the things I love doing here are scripted segments, things that take an hour of my time to execute for three-minute-long bits, whether it's rapping about Drew Locke or singing parody songs for Giannis, which I'm sure I'll play at some point here in the podcast because we like playing it again, or doing a last dance intro for the New Orleans Saints, whatever it ends up being, I love the bit around here. And before Game 6 of the NBA Finals, where... Giannis Antetokounmpo, the player who I have shed tears for. I have shed tears for his success across the last three years. The player who I say is the face of a generation, the best player in professional basketball, and who I will, in the you know Nick Wright, LeBron James-esque wrestling character, hitch my wagon to Giannis Antetokounmpo for the next six years and ride this magical train as a kid from Athens, Greece, becomes the face of a generation. And so with game six of the NBA finals tonight, with Giannis having one chance on the home floor with now 65,000 people in the Deer District alone in Milwaukee, their max capacity before was 28,000. They're going up to 65,000 people at the Deer District tomorrow plus another 22,000 inside the, can you guess the name of the stadium? Do you want to play a game of name that stadium? I'm not even going to give you options on this one. Do you think you can name the Milwaukee Bucks stadium? Inside, it's not called the Deer District also. 65,000 people in the Deer District, plus 25, I'm sorry, 22,000 people in the Fiserv Forum, which I used to call the Pfizer V Forum. We have the Milwaukee Bucks and Giannis Antetokounmpo in front of 100,000 people in Milwaukee, a chance to win a championship on the home floor. And so if that weren't high pressured enough, and if that weren't enough to give you goosebumps running up and down your arm or a little bit of disappointment because you couldn't name that the Milwaukee Bucks stadium is the Serve Forum. By the way, in the spirit of name that stadium, the Phoenix Suns stadium changed names on the day of game five. I, I know it used to be funny that it was called the Talking Stick Resort Arena, and now it's not called that anymore, but I can't tell you what the name of the new stadium is because it changed a few days ago because usually the season would be over at this point, but because the finals got pushed back a month, they changed names of the stadium mid-finals. 
So fun game of name that stadium. Someone can go Google what the name of the new sun stadium is. Maybe we'll save it for another edition of name that stadium. But anyways, Giannis is playing in front of a hundred thousand people tonight. And if that didn't give you goosebumps enough, we scripted a bit for Giannis Antetokounmpo facing a moment of reckoning to become the face of a generation. What was supposed to be a red carpet coordination followed by him having his leg look like a flamingo and all of that stuff led to this magical night, one game away from the finals and me bursting into a fit of happiness for Giannis Antetokounmpo. Not that I love the bucks. I love Giannis. And if he's going to be a buck, then I guess by definition, I would love, or I guess by some weird psych, um, psych, not psychology, um, philosophy, then, then therefore statement, I love the Bucks, And so here is our scripted speech for Giannis Antetokounmpo here tonight. Hello, Giannis. Quite the night we have in front of us here. You being one game away from your first ever championship. Giannis, tonight is your night. You're a two-time NBA MVP, defensive player of the year, the face of a generation with MVPs like Jokic, defensive player of the years like Rudy Gobert, and future stars of the league like Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, and Donovan Mitchell. Giannis, you have endured a collapse at the hands of Kawhi Leonard. The punishment that all stars must endure as they come of age. You faced a global pandemic that blew up one of the most historic seasons in the history of the NBA. You went into a bubble, got injured, vanquished at the hands of the Miami Heat and point one seconds on the clock when you fouled Jimmy Butler in that game two that shouldn't have been called a foul and should have gone to overtime. Giannis, you've endured 50-point games from Kevin Durant. You have endured years of a front office that has failed you time and time again, who let Malcolm Brogdon walk in free agency after an Eastern Conference Finals, surrounding you with Bryn Forbes and Greg Monroe, giving up four first-round picks for Drew Holiday, signing two max extensions for Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, and trading for a washed-up P.J. Tucker with assets you could have traded for Bogdanovich if you hadn't tampered. You signed a Supermax extension in Milwaukee. You were loyal to the mid-market team that got lucky to get you, and now we are one game away from the Giannis generation. Not only a two-time MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, and best player in the NBA, but a champion establishing not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six years of the Giannis generation. Tonight begins the Giannis generation. Apologies if you hear me sound a little winded right now because I just got done running through a brick wall because Giannis, tonight is the official beginning of the Giannis generation. And the Giannis generation is something that leads into this segment that I wanted to talk about today, which is generations in professional basketball, because professional basketball is the sport where the stars matter the most. And I think the simplest reason for it is just stars have more of an impact on the game. Basketball is a sport where the playoff series are the least surprising. Usually the best team advances across the seven game series. And with the exception of three champions across the last 40 years, a team has a top five player in the sport on the championship team, which you cannot say about football, although an overwhelming percentage of teams have the top, have a top five player. You cannot say that about football, hockey, baseball, 
I guess soccer to an extent, but soccer most of the time you can you can get a top five player. But the point being, basketball is the sport where having superstars matters a lot. And something that I came to notice over the past two years is that these stars work in generations. They work in about two two generations a decade. And I've noticed this in football too, where football, because of the lifespan of the athletes, they work in generations where they run the league. And what are generations defined as? They are the physical primes of players who end up dominating the league, which can alternatively be drawn back to when they were drafted within about a five to six year period. But the, the physical prime for NBA basketball players is about 27 to 31, 27 to 32, roughly. It's again, there, there's no exact number. Each player is a case by case basis, but we say like 27 to 31 is the physical peak of basketball players. And so a generation of players will be between 27 and 31 at any given time. So about five years defines a generation of professional basketball stars. We define, and this is something I apply outside of sports, because again, sports reflect society, where generations, whether it's Gen Z or millennials or Gen X, are defined by usually like 15-year increments. And I say that each of those 15-year increments has about three different cultural generations within each of the 15 generations are really by about five years when people enter their primes, whatever that may be defined as you could call it high school, you could call it college. It's just people with shared experiences um, who go through the same life stages at similar times. So from the basketball standpoint, about five years is a generation. And this is something I've always kind of abided by, but never really was able to pinpoint down exactly the thoughts around that. And so Something I, I stumbled into over the weekend while I was actually talking about the Oklahoma City Thunder um, from the 2000s was, or the 2010s, I guess, early 2010s was the Thunder, um, was stumbling upon generations. And so each of those five-year generations, and again, it's ballpark, it's not perfectly five years, but ballpark, it's when players enter 27 to 31 at the same time. Typically, each generation has about 10 Hall of Famers. And the sample size I'm using for this is projecting future players in this upcoming generation as well as back through my entire lifetime. So I'm 20 years old. That represents four generations of NBA stars. And I would guess if I did the sample further back, you would have the Kobe Tim Duncan generation where they were drafted between like 1996 and 1990 or 1996 and 2000 let's say and then toss out the 2001 draft that was just all busts um so like 1996 to 2000 I'd say roughly you get about 10 hall of famers in five years which means by simple math of roughly 10 hall of famers per generation divided by five years when they enter their prime each draft class, theoretically, has an average of about two Hall of Famers. Every single draft class has a rough average of two Hall of Famers in each class, which is the, the 10 Hall of Famers by generation divided by five years. Simple math. Some years will have one, other years might have three, but they average out to around two a year. So... The, the generations that I carved out, which is four generations deep, going back my entire lifetime, going back to 2002, I was born in 2001, and the 2001 draft class was absolutely putrid. I think like Jamal Crawford was the best player from that draft class. So beginning in 2002, which is my lifetime, there have been four generations of NBA superstars, and I want to do this experiment for the NFL and it's harder because there's so many players in so many positions. But I think if you focused in on quarterbacks, I think you'd see some sort of a similar trend because of the physical prime for quarterbacks. So the first generation I have here goes back to 2002 when players entered that physical prime of 27 to 31 and then subtract it back to their drafts. So let's start 2002. There were 
zero Hall of Famers. Well, we can call them superstars, shall we say? Zero superstars in that class. The best player in that class, which you could argue both sides, like injuries, etc., was Amari Stoudemire. Amari Stoudemire was the best player from the 2002 class, and Yao Ming ended up making the Hall of Fame, but a part of that was contributions overseas, and his NBA career ended up being like a short glimpse of success, but never was like a, I think he made an, um, an all NBA team, but never really was, you know, a, a super superstar. So Amari Stoudemire was the best player in 2002. So we'll say zero, you could argue one superstar. So we're at zero. 2003, four superstars, which is why the 2003 class is regarded as one of the greatest of all time. LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh four superstars all at the top of their draft. It's why that class was universally regarded as like one of the greatest of all time. 1996, you could go the same path. You got Jason or not Jason kid. You get Steve Nash, you get Kobe Bryant, you get Vince Carter. Um, you get a bunch of these guys in 96. So these classes that we remember are like these all time great draft classes. And that this is, again, the goal of ro- this could propose another conversation about roster building, where the best way to build a roster is to get a top draft pick in a year with a superstar. Not superstars aren't always guaranteed to go at the top, but you have a better chance of getting a superstar at the top of a draft, as we'll see as we go down further through this. 2004, one superstar, Dwight Howard, number one pick in the draft. He'll be an easy Hall of Famer. So Dwight Howard is the number one superstar, is the one superstar from that class. So you've got five in three years. 2005, you've got one to two superstars. Chris Paul, easy. Darren Williams by talent, but not exactly merit. Darren Williams flamed out a little bit. Um, Two-time All-Star, Redeem Team 2008. Like Darren Williams very clearly gets to be on this list. And there's an argument to be made for Joe Johnson too, who's kind of hanging around 2002 2003 um you can make an argument for both of those guys again it's nitpicking but again once you get to like again it's not a perfect 10 but once you get down to that point it's difficult to kind of pick and choose people so again i'll throw them in there um but again it doesn't have to be an equal 10 like it can be nine it can be 11 uh we don't have to argue the merits about someone's hall of fame case but one to two i'm throwing darren williams in there by talent three-time all-star uh, did it by the time he was like 26, just injuries kind of shortened his career a little bit. By the time he was 26, he had like three all-stars, a conference finals appearance and uh, a gold medal at the Olympics, like a legitimate leading the starting point guard on a gold medal team. So Darren Williams by talent gets to be on here, but maybe not merit. 2006, two superstars, LaMarcus Aldridge, Kyle Lowry. Those two definitely... Uh, LeBron generation. They peaked a little later, both of them, but both of them get to be in the LeBron generation for sure. LaMarcus Aldridge, Kyle Lowry, both are going to probably make the Hall of Fame. Uh, 2007 had one superstar, which is, again, this one's a very specific case because the generation technically ends after 2006. But 2007, one superstar is Marcus Gasol. He's in this class because Marcus Gasol was 22 when he was drafted. And 19 is the age for most players in that class. And Pau Gasol was a little bit earlier, but Pau Gasol is in this generation too. Again, you could argue Darren Williams. You could argue Pau Gasol. It's by talent, not necessarily merit. There's less Hall of Famers from that era. So again, it's nitpicking. But Marc Gasol is definitely in that era because he was 2007 class, but he was 22 when he gets drafted. So that averages out to... One, two, three, four, five, ten superstars across six years, uh, average of about 1.6 per class. But if you want to throw out 2002 where there were no superstars, 10 in five years. So that's the LeBron generation. LeBron is the face of that generation. LeBron's the best player of that generation by leaps and bounds. LeBron James is the best player of that generation. So now we have the Kevin Durant generation. This is the, the next era that kind of surplants LeBron James. And, and to be fair, there is a case to be made that this is the Durant-Curry generation. You can split those two in half. But 
for our intensive purposes, we're going to call this the Kevin Durant generation because Kevin Durant's a better player than Steph Curry based on pure talent alone anyways. So the Kevin Durant generation is typically defined by drafts from 2007 to 2011. So that five-year period from 2007 to 2011. Again, not going to be perfect, but that's the five-year span we're working with, where the players from that class will typically enter their prime, their 27 to 31 prime at the same time. Actually, before we get to Kevin Durant's generation, think about what was happening around 2011. You had the LeBron generation going from being the babies, you know, the children who went to the Olympics and won gold and Kobe Bryant was mentoring them and all that stuff. And then, you know, talks in 09 and 10 about LeBron versus Kobe in the finals and the King versus, you know, the the Mamba and all that stuff that never ended up happening because Dwight Howard ruined it for us. But think about what's going on then. You have the babies coming of age, getting ready to surplant the generation that is aging out of their primes, Kobe, Kevin Garnett, um, Paul Pierce, Steve Nash, all these guys are exiting their primes. And so LeBron's getting ready, that generation's getting ready to surplant the older generation. And then we have the new babies coming into the NBA, which are 2007, one superstar, Kevin Durant, number two pick in the draft, Seattle Supersonics. 2008, three superstars or Hall of Famers, whatever you want to call them. They're superstars or Hall of Famers. Derrick Rose, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love. Those are your three superstars from that class. 2009, four superstars, which again, there's an argument to be made that this goes down as one of the greatest classes in NBA history. Blake Griffin, James Harden, Steph Curry, DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan, again, you can debate the merits of DeMar DeRozan. He might make the Hall of Fame. He might not make the Hall of Fame. You can argue the merits of DeMar DeRozan both ways. The Raptors happen to have an older generation guy and a younger generation guy at a time that they were coming of age and making conference final runs and ultimately winning a championship by flipping DeMar DeRozan for a true superstar of that era. So, four superstars from that era. 2010, you get... Two to three superstars. Two of them, no question. Paul George, John Wall. Those are your two, no question. Throw them up on the list. Then you have DeMarcus Cousins. By talent, definitely. DeMarcus Cousins, by talent, was a superstar, Hall of Fame level talent. One of those people that you you can build a franchise around through the draft. So DeMarcus Cousins, by talent, not as much resume, which a lot of it is, again, injuries. Same thing as Derrick Rose. Derrick Rose, talent, easily a superstar. Injuries derail a long career or a potential Hall of Fame career, even though Derrick Rose might get into the Hall of Fame by MVP alone. Boogie Cousins, same situation. Talent, yes. Resume, not quite there, but a lot of that is injuries. So two to three. You could, I'd say three because I'm generous. I understand the arguments otherwise. 2011, two to four superstars. Kyrie Irving and Klay Thompson, very clearly that era of basketball. The next two are Kawhi Leonard and Jimmy Butler, both superstars, no question, but they're both tweeners in this one because Kawhi Leonard is 20 when he gets drafted in 2011 and Jimmy Butler is I believe 19 maybe but Jimmy Butler now is 30 so Jimmy Butler is like the young guy of this generation as Kevin Durant and Steph Curry are now 33 32 Jimmy Butler is 31 getting ready to turn 32 so these guys are tweeners between this era Kawhi Leonard Jimmy Butler get to be in this era but they're kind of in between guys and then 2012 one superstar is Damian Lillard, who was 22 when he was drafted. So Damian Lillard entered his prime with this generation, even if he was drafted a year later. So Damian Lillard gets to definitely be in this generation because you wouldn't put Damian Lillard in the same generation as Devin Booker, like not by a long shot. So here you go. One, 
four, eight, 11, 15, 16 superstars in six years. A little bit more than the last generation. Yes. But also, in terms of like superstars, you get Derrick Rose and DeMarcus Cousins and, you know, guys who, you know, you could argue their merits, but they're superstar caliber players. So you could throw them up there. 16 players in six years. So next up, we have the Giannis generation, which is now coming of age right now. And again, think about what was happening around 2016. LeBron James, at his physical prime, wins three championships. Kevin Durant joins Steph Curry, the two faces of a generation. And this new generation, by virtue of just being so dominant and having the two faces of that generation come together, establish the Durant-Curry generation. I'd call it the Durant generation, but I don't want to disrespect Steph Curry's greatness. Like, Steph Curry is closer the same way Dwayne Wade is closer. And so, the Durant generation in 2016-17 is establishing themselves as the greatness of the sport as the babies start making their claim to the NBA. The new babies in 2017. Now it's the Durant-Curry generation. The LeBron generation is the old guys. And now we have the Giannis generation. 2012. Damian Lillard gets to go to the other generation, but you know who was in 2012? Anthony Davis, Bradley Beal. Giannis generation. 2013. Two superstars. Giannis, Rudy Gobert. Those two are the stars of their generation. Yes, Rudy Gobert is going to be a Hall of Famer. Start getting used to it. 2014. Two superstars. Joel Embiid at pick three. And at pick 41, Nikola Jokic. Those are the two superstars of their generation. 2015. Two superstars. Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns by talent alone. Carl Anthony Towns has a long way to go to get to that point, but Carl Anthony Towns, no question, is a superstar of this era and Hall of Fame talent. Like with Kevin Love, he just gets beat down by being in Minnesota. <laughs> Kevin Love was putting up Hall of Fame numbers when he was in Minnesota. Carl Anthony Towns has made an all NBA team and two All Stars by 24 years old on teams that have made the playoffs one time with Jimmy Butler, a superstar from another era, which should have been the three seed that one year. 2016, you have four superstar candidates. And again, a lot of this has to go with, um, a lot of this has to do with just too early to tell. They're just players with, with Hall of Fame t- talent, but it's just too early to call it for all of them. So you've got Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingram, Jalen Brown, and Demodis Sabonis. Again, too early to call on all of them, but they're players who we look at and say, okay, they are people who are candidates to be stars of this generation. We can point to them and say, those guys are awesome. So throw those two together. And again, some of these guys are going to be tweeners. Like um, Jalen Brown, Demodis Sabonis, they're probably going to be tweeners in the two generations. And then 2017 is Donovan Mitchell, but Donovan Mitchell was 21 when he was drafted. So Donovan Mitchell could be a tweener, but Donovan Mitchell was older when drafted. He's the same age as Devin Booker, and both of them are one year younger than Giannis. So both of them get to be in the Giannis generation for sure. Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker, Joel Embiid, all those guys are coming of age right now. Think about it. We talked about 2012, 2017. By the five-year increment, now we get to 2022 when the Giannis generation establishes themselves. But here we are in 2021 with Giannis Antetokounmpo one game away from officially launching the Giannis generation in 2021, which is the exact same thing that happened five years ago. What was the defining moment that launched the Durant generation? Kevin Durant signing with the Golden State Warriors. And by default, Kevin Durant and the Warriors winning that championship in 2017. But we can pinpoint the moment Kevin Durant signed with the Warriors was the moment where that generation kicked off. 
when did the LeBron generation kick off? 2012 championship over the Oklahoma City Thunder, which you could take a step further and say, what was the transition of power? It was LeBron James, Game 7, 40-point triple-double against the Boston Celtics in 2012 and 2011, both of them. You could argue both of them. And then Dirk Nowitzki wins a weird championship to delay the LeBron crowning, which would be the same thing the Suns would do right now in preventing the crowning of Devin Booker. Or I'm sorry, Devin Booker prevents the crowning of Giannis Antetokounmpo. So 2012, crowning moment. 2016 and 2017, crowning moment. 2021-22, crowning moment for the Giannis generation by Giannis winning a championship begins the Giannis generation. Even if Giannis isn't the one winning the championships, like LeBron won back-to-back in 12 and 13, or Kevin Durant won back-to-back in in 17, 18, and would have won another one in 19. Even if Giannis doesn't win them back and forth, Giannis is the unquestioned face of a generation. You heard my impassioned speech to Giannis Antetokounmpo. That's a two-time MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, and soon-to-be NBA champion. That is the face of the generation, unquestioned. Might should have won a third MVP. You could argue should have won a third MVP this year. Now, Jokic was the best in, in win shares per 48, and I understand Jokic was awesome this year. But you could argue Giannis should have, could have, would have been the MVP this year. He finished third in the MVP. So this guy is the face of the generation, and this is his championship to lose. I don't know if he gets back to another one, but boy, it would be a hell of a crowning achievement to have it happen right now. Rooting for you, Giannis. Please, please cap this one off here in Game 6. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, yes, we have done early projections on the what is starting to look like the Luka Zion generation between the two of them. We're doing early projections on this. So again, a lot of this might end up being wrong. 2017, two superstars, Jason Tatum, Bam Adebayo. 2018, two superstars, Luka, Trey Young. 2019, two superstars, Zion Williamson, Ja Morant. 2020, two superstars, Ant-Man and LaMelo Ball. I mean, it's a lot to put the expectations on them now, but we look at them and say, oh yeah, those two dudes look special. The Ant-Man and LaMelo Ball. 2021 could be four superstars. Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Jalen Suggs, and uh, Evan Mobley. All of them have special potential. They might not all reach that special potential, but... We see it at least right now. So let's see how it keeps going from here. Again, that's just early, early projections, but we'll call it the Luca Zion generation. We had the Durant Curry generation. We could have the LeBron D Wade generation if you want to, but I would call it the LeBron generation. Call it the banana boat generation. How about that? The banana boat generation, the Giannis generation, the Durant Curry generation, and the Luca Zion generation. And that's my lifetime of basketball summed up in one magical 25-minute podcast. You see, I drive in the paint with my long ass arms and I'm like, fuck you. I guess the shame from Kauai wasn't enough. I'm like, fuck you cause now we got drew said if i was better i'd make a three-pointer but have you seen chris middleton and although the heat gon' get swept i wish jimmy the best tell him fuck you ooh, ooh, ooh. well i'm sorry about 19 and 20 but that don't mean i can't get you there cause i'm 26 i got two mvps the way I play the game ain't fair. I pity the heat for not getting James Harden. Should have traded Tyler Hero. I got blocked by Bam out of my yo. I got some news for you. Bryn Forbes hit six threes in game two. You see, I drive in the paint with my long ass arms. I'm like, fuck you. I guess the shame from Kawhi wasn't enough. I'm like, fuck you, cause now we got Drew. Said if I was better, I'd make a three-pointer. But have you seen Chris Middleton? 
And although the heat gon' get swept, I wish Jimmy the best. Tell him, fuck you. Let's move on over to baseball, shall we? The Chicago White Sox are really good. I mean, people have been calling them the Padres of the AL or Padres Junior at this point. This is not to to rub myself a little bit because I have a, a magical baseball team from the place I'm from. By the way, have you ever thought about why we root for uh, teams that we were born into the cities of? It's a really fascinating thought experiment. I was reading a book that kind of talked about this idea and it's like, you know, we, we want to feel like we're part of a tribe or a group or people who are passionate about the same things. And so it gives you all those warm fuzzies when you hear like a national syndicated show, like for me, the Dan Lebitard show with Stugatz, hearing them talk about the Padres just gives me all these warm fuzzies inside that get me excited. And so it feels good to have your team being talked about on a national stage and be like, yes, this is my home. This is where I'm from, even though I don't live in San Diego anymore and don't plan to move back anytime soon. It's still my team, my city, my, you know, the place I grew up, even though I've pretty much shed my Chargers fandoms and my Laker fandoms and pretty much all of my fandoms from childhood. But I will still hang on to that San Diego Padres fandom and defend it aggressively and irrationally at times, uh, as I'm doing right now by talking about the White Sox without spending a minute and a half talking about the San Diego Padres. So the Chicago White Sox, they have the best record in the American League. They are only behind the Houston Astros in run differential. And for those who don't know, run differential is a statistic that resembles like projected record. Now I could go further and go to a baseball reference and find their actual projected record, but the Chicago White Sox run run differential gives us just enough of a heads up to like, Hey, this is what the team should be um, over a large sample size because sometimes baseball can be weird in results and run differential just takes how much you're being blown out by. For example, if you win a lot of close games and get blown out a lot, then your and your team's like 500 but your run differential's negative 40 like for example the Chicago Cubs they are 46 and 47 but have a negative 20 run differential St. Louis Cardinals 46 and 47 but have a negative 42 run differential both are bad but not all 46 and 47 teams are built equally and so Run differential can just be a good case study for figuring out how good or bad teams actually are. So the White Sox have the best record in the American League. They have the second best run differential only behind the Astros. And they've done it this year with some like really major injuries to their batting lineup. Nick Madrigal's been out for most of the season. Eloy Jimenez has missed the entire season. Yermen Mercedes, who was supposed to be this superstar, this supernova star prospect jumping on the scenes and was awesome for about a month, uh, got sent down to AAA after hitting like 150. And so like three key pieces to their lineup or three key pieces that they were counting on just didn't show up and or got injured. And so they've had a rotating cast of like Jake Lamb. I didn't even know Jake Lamb was still in baseball. I was watching them play the Astros over the weekend and they had, I think it was, was it, it wasn't Adam Eaton or Adam Engel. It was, uh, God, they had some rando in center field, like just an old baseball name that I could, I can't remember now and can't edit because, you know, it's a podcast and I'm kind of lazy, but at the same time, like they just had some random people going through that lineup. And so the White Sox, uh, Brian Goodwin, that's who it was. Brian Goodwin for the, he was a former Washington national. Like I didn't even know he was still in baseball. He was hitting fourth for the White Sox and they had Mendick who was playing for Tim Anderson and they had some guy named Berger, uh, but not the burger, like the golfer, like spelled like the cheeseburger. His name is Jake Berger. Um, and he's doing really well, but also he got called up like less than a month ago. And so the White Sox have had the best record in baseball while having some catastrophic things go wrong with them. Like that's the thing I've said about the Padres. The Padres may have the third best record in the national league and the Padres may be like, you know, in a wild card game, but still could also go to the world series. 
but they've also been remarkably healthy this year, except for a COVID scare that knocked everyone out for like eight days. The Padres have been remarkably healthy this year in batting. Now, pitchers, not so much. They've had Darvish get injured, Blake Snell get injured, no Clevenger, Denelson Lamette is perpetually injured. Again, I'm talking about the Padres because I'm just an avid San Diego Padres fan. But anyways, the White Sox have been remarkably healthy with injuries this year, and their major strength, which is huge come playoff time, is the White Sox have three legitimate number one starters and a legitimate top-of-the-line closer. And most of them made the All-Star team. When we were in uh, Chicago, I'm sorry, when we were in Colorado last week, Colorado lost week, Colorado lost week, Colorado lost week. That's a little bit of a tongue twister. When we were in Colorado last week, you know, Liam Hendricks was there. Lance Lynn made the All-Star team and got a two-year contract extension from the White Sox. Um They've had Dallas Keuchel be a massive success this year, even if, you know, he wasn't an all-star. He's still been excellent so far this year. And Lucas Giolito has had a down year, but he hasn't been great. And Carlos Rodon was an all-star. So you had Carlos Rodon, you had Lance Lynn, and you have Lucas Giolito, and Dallas Keuchel is a fourth starter. You know, he's it's been all right, but Dallas Keuchel's a former Cy Young Award winner. Like, he'll give you something. Still a fourth starter for a really good team. And so... Carlos Rodon, Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito, three elite starting pitchers for the Chicago White Sox, and Liam Hendricks as their closer. And so as the White Sox approach the trade deadline, they've got an interesting thing coming up where Eloy Jimenez is in AAA doing rehab, so he'll be back after missing most of the season. And they're hoping Nick Madrigal will come back at some point this year. And maybe Yerman Mercedes has something left in the tank. But if you look up at the White Sox right now, it's been they most of their positions should be filled at some point here because you've got Abreu at first base, MVP last year, no question. Tim Anderson, shortstop, all star, bona fide leadoff hitter all the way through. Yasmani Grandal, star catcher. He was, I think, an all star, but didn't play if I remember correctly. But he's been excellent this year just excellent right there Yohan Moncada is going to be in there somewhere in the lineup not if you're not even if you're not sure exactly Luis Robert is I think done for the season um but Luis Robert would have been there you know their center fielder let me just make sure Luis Robert is done for the season yeah uh Luis Robert is yeah done for the season um but no, cleared for minor league rehab. Sorry, no, Luis Robert is on his way back. Uh, Luis Robert, sorry. <laughs> no, Luis Robert is one of those injured guys that I forgot to mention. Nick Madrigal, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, maybe German Mercedes. Then you've got, obviously, Anderson, all-star. Abreu, all-star. Uh, Yasmani Grandal, all-star. Yohan Moncada, starting caliber player. Adam Engel, back from injury. Like, they've got so many pieces coming back. That you look around and like with the Padres, which again, they're like Padres of the AL. You look around and they're like, they don't need anything other than depth. And even depth, Berger's been all right. I know I, you know, he's, he's just got up, but he has like a 950 OPS, which I'm guessing should come down at some point. And Goodwin has had a pretty good season. I mean, Billy Hamilton's still there and Jake Lamb, like they've got depth. Maybe you could argue they could use better depth, but I mean, they're a great team and great teams have great players. And so. They've got their top of the line rotation. They've got their star closer, which again, you could argue they need a couple bullpen arms, but everyone needs bullpen arms at this time. Everyone trades for at least one at the deadline. And so while I was doing some look, I was I was looking at some targets, some, some money targets for the Chicago White Sox going forward because they have a really good team. Even through, you know, at the start of the year, we were like Tony LaRusso's old guy. And then Tony LaRusso did old guy thing. And the players are like, yeah, we just kind of ignore him like a great grandpa. We just kind of ignore him. And so that was kind of the last a lot of people heard of the White Sox. But they are tr they are just flush with young talent. And, you know, Tim Anderson was a great surprise for them, I would say. Carlos Rodon has been a great surprise. Lance Lynn was a smart acquisition like and all the young talent they've been waiting for for six years hit at the right time. So here are those targets that I'd come up with. Starling Marte is definitely one that you could throw out there. Now, he hasn't been connected to the White Sox. He's been connected to, uh, I believe it was the Phillies and the Yankees and the Astros. 
but he hasn't been connected to the White Sox yet. But I think that would be a good target for them to add. They also could add Josh Harrison, utility player, Washington Nationals. He's hitting roughly 700, but it just adds the depth. You'd only have to give up one player to get him. So add a little depth piece in there. And their big fish is Chris Bryant. But everyone's big fish should be Chris Bryant at this point because Chris Bryant is going to be the best player available at the trade deadline as a one-year rental, which means you don't have to give up quite as much for him. Maybe one top-end prospect, but not two or three in your top 10, which, you know, if Chris Bryant had multiple years of control, that's what he would command. And so... Chris Bryant should be their big fish swing, but everyone should be trying to get Chris Bryant. If you're the Mets, if you're the Dodgers, if you're the Padres, if you're the Giants, well, the Giants, he could argue back and forth because the Giants might be contenders, but they might be just sitting still at this point. They're definitely not sellers, but they might just kind of be sitting still at the deadline to see how this plays out. They could lose to the Dodgers uh, tonight on Wednesday and fall out of first place in the division. So let's like, let's pump the brakes there. But the Dodgers, the Padres, the White Sox, the Red Sox, not so much the Yankees, the Astros and the White Sox should uh, I said the White Sox and the Astros, even Tampa, I'll throw Tampa in the mix. Tampa should go trade for Chris Bryant like everyone should be trying to trade for Chris Bryant if you're an elite team at this point. Yes, it's a rental. Most of these teams have some level of farm system depth. I know the Astros have been totally depleted over like six years of buying now and they've replenished some and they you know Jordan Alvarez graduated and he's been awesome but a lot of farm system depth has been depleted for a lot of teams but you should still go get Chris Bryant all of those teams should go get Chris Bryant because it's Chris Bryant he's a former MVP one-year rental Everyone should be trying to get him because it just might be a nice separator even the Dodgers who have you know great bats new pieces, new faces to torment me in the playoffs like Zach McKinstry. But and they're they're making an all out push to get starting pitching, but even they could use a Chris Bryant at this point. Even they could take a Chris Bryant for this loaded lineup that was supposed to be the best thing of 20 years even though the Astros 2 years ago were the best thing in 20 years with or without cheating. But the Dodgers are supposed to be, you know, the greatest offense of 20 years and it hasn't quite been that this year. Injuries piling up, injuries to everyone at different times, never getting everyone together. A major down year for Mookie Betts, even though he made the all-star team, which, you know, you could argue merit on him getting voted into the all-star game. But anyways, point being, the Dodgers are in the market for starting pitching, but even they could use Chris Bryant. So while I say Chris Bryant is the big fish for the White Sox, every team who is in first place presently, other than the Giants, I would say, should be in on Chris Bryant and the Mets. Don't do it if you're the Mets. So the Mets were connected to it, and that's like a... Uh, that, that is a Steve Cohen type move right there. Just trading for rental Chris Bryant when you're like the fifth best team in the Amer- in the National League. Even the Brewers. I know the Cubs won't trade him to the Brewers, but the Brewers should at least put in an offer. Um, so yeah, what were the six teams I mentioned? All of them should go get Chris Bryant. If you're the Dodgers, Padres, uh, Astros, White Sox, Red Sox, and Tampa Bay. <laughs> All of them go get Chris Bryant. All of them try and get Chris Bryant, which is good for the Cubs. Cubs can have a fire sale and make this trade deadline extra interesting. So let's hope they do that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast here on a fantabulous Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or however and whenever it is that you are stopping in. Make sure to leave those five-star reviews. Doesn't have to be a nice review, just needs to be a five-star review. Leave those downloads and leave those follows as well. We will be back again tomorrow recapping that NBA Finals and hopefully, hopefully Giannis can claim that championship. So I will leave you today with more of them goosebumps feels because put in about 45 minutes to make this segment and I want to milk it as much as possible. So take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Fear the deer. Hello, Giannis. Quite the night we have in front of us here. 
you being one game away from your first ever championship. Giannis, tonight is your night. You're a two-time NBA MVP, defensive player of the year, the face of a generation with MVPs like Jokic, defensive player of the years like Rudy Gobert, and future stars of the league like Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, and Donovan Mitchell. Giannis, you have endured a collapse at the hands of Kawhi Leonard. The punishment that all stars must endure as they come of age. You faced a global pandemic that blew up one of the most historic seasons in the history of the NBA. You went into a bubble, got injured, vanquished at the hands of the Miami Heat, and point one seconds on the clock when you fouled Jimmy Butler in that game two that shouldn't have been called a foul and should have gone to overtime. Giannis, you've endured 50-point games from Kevin Durant. You have endured years of a front office that has failed you time and time again, who let Malcolm Brogdon walk in free agency after an Eastern Conference Finals, surrounding you with Bryn Forbes and Greg Monroe, giving up four first-round picks for Drew Holiday, signing two max extensions for Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, and trading for a washed-up P.J. Tucker with assets you could have traded for Bogdanovich if you hadn't tampered. You signed a Supermax extension in Milwaukee. You were loyal to the mid-market team that got lucky to get you, and now we are one game away from the Giannis generation. Not only a two-time MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, and best player in the NBA, but a champion establishing not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but six years of the Giannis generation. Tonight begins the Giannis generation. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.